Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Bill Browder. Bill is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, a hedge fund that was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005, when calamity began to strike in the form of Russian corruption. Since 2009, Mr. Browder has been leading a campaign to expose Russia's corruption and human rights abuses following the death of his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who died in prison after uncovering a $230 million fraud committed by Russian government officials, which would ultimately prove to be the demise of Hermitage Capital. Bill describes this fascinating but also tragic story in a new book that I simply couldn't put down, Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. Thanks for joining us today, Bill. Thank you. How does one go from being the grandson of the head of the Communist Party USA, that is your grandfather, Earl Browder, to a hedge fund manager? Well, in in my case, um, I, I was going through my teenage rebellion um, in the 1930s, and I said, well, um, if I put on a suit and try and become a capitalist, there was nothing that would upset my family more than that. And so that, that's what I did. I ended up uh, at Stanford Business School. Um, and I graduated in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. Um, and as I was looking at, at, at job opportunities after business school and what, what I was going to do with my career, um, I, I came up with this idea, which was if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, I'm going to go and try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so that's what I set out to do. Um, and uh, I, uh, I moved to London. And, and a couple of years later, the Russian government, um, I should say the Soviet Union, fell apart. And the Russian government under Yeltsin decided that the best way to um, convert from communism to capitalism was to give assets away for free in the form of what they called mass privatization. And, um, and so they, they started giving away all the assets. And the assets were, were um, uh, so undervalued that they traded only at a slight multiple to free. Um, and so you could buy shares in oil companies for a 99.7% discount to the comparable companies in the West. And so I ended up, um, I was at Solomon Brothers at the time, and I ended up um, uh, starting to invest in, in these um, undervalued shares. And, um, and pretty soon this led me um, uh, leaving Solomon, setting up my own investment firm called Hermitage Capital, I moved to Moscow full-time in 1996 and set up this investment fund, which started with, um, with, with $25 million of capital from a, a famous investor named Edmund Safra, and um, eventually grew to become the largest investment fund in the country with $4.5 billion. So you were sort of a value investor, in effect, and, and which is to say you looked for companies that were undervalued relative to what their assets were actually worth, and you sought to buy them at these huge discounts to their real value. And one of the key principles of value investing is a margin of safety. That is, you're comfortable that you are buying an asset at such a discount to its real value that you expect that a percentage of the time you are going to make a massive return on your investment. Now, part of that margin of safety is understanding the risk involved with these investments. At the time when you started investing in Russia, were you aware that almost all of the companies on the market, especially in the oil industry, were either directly or indirectly owned by Russian government officials, many of whom were ex-KGB or FSB? And if so, why were you comfortable investing in those companies? 
So, so to start out with, um, so, so you're right about the whole value investing uh, thesis. So, so my, my, my basic investment thesis when I started out was if you're buying something at a 99.7% discount, um, uh, it doesn't take much for it to go up 10 times in value. And so the, the, way, the way that I looked at this thing was maybe there's a 50% chance that, that everything is going to go the wrong way and I'm going to lose everything. And I said, maybe there's a 50% chance that they don't, it doesn't go the wrong way, in which case, um, over a short period of time, I'm going to make 10 times my money. And so I said to myself, on a, on a risk-reward basis, if, if there's a half a chance of making 10 times your money and a half a chance of only losing one times your money, that's a pretty good trade. Now, coming to your second question, at the very beginning, these companies weren't owned by, by these KGB thugs. There was, there was a transition period. So the, the first, first um, set of people who owned these Russian companies are these people known as the Russian oligarchs. And you probably, many people have seen them buying sports teams and, and um, owning super yachts and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And the first, the first people were these oligarchs. And the oligarchs were definitely not nice people. These were, these were bad people by any, by any measure, but they weren't KGB thugs that we're going to get to in a second. What happened was that when, when Vladimir Putin came to power um, in year 2000, um, one of his big objectives was to um, take the power away from the oligarchs. And so the way he, he went about doing this was he arrested the biggest oligarch in the country, uh, a guy named Michael Kordakovsky, who owned the biggest oil company called Yukos. He arrested him, and they put him on trial, and they allowed the television cameras to film the richest guy in Russia sitting in a cage. And so you were on your yacht parked off uh, the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, France, in the Côte d'Azur, and you turned on your CNN and you saw uh, the richest guy, someone far better and far more um, talented than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction? Well, in most cases, their natural reaction was to go to Vladimir Putin and say, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And I wasn't, I wasn't in these meetings, but from what I could tell afterwards, the answer to that question was 50%. Basically, he said, if you give me 50%, then I won't put you in jail. And that was the moment in time, in 2004, that Vladimir Putin and those people closely connected to him um, became the owners of very significant parts of all these important oil companies and so on. And so from, in one fell swoop, uh, Putin went from, from being president of Russia to becoming the biggest oligarch in Russia and one of the biggest oligarchs in the world. So Putin develops this tribute system where, in effect, if you want to do business in Russia and keep your wealth, you need to pay him off. And you are cruising along in your fund. You're making huge returns, and the assets under management go up many times. The first sign of trouble that you describe in your book for Hermitage and yourself is the Sedenko episode. Speak a little bit about what happened there. I'm going around, at this point in time, early in my career, um, I would describe myself just as a, um, a simple financial analyst. I was just looking at stuff, you know, what's the value of one oil company, value of another oil company. And I found this oil company called Sedanko, which was trading at one-tenth the valuation of, an, of all the other Russian oil companies, like, for example, Luke Oil, which is a well-known Russian oil company at the time. And I said to myself, I want to buy the, this, um, this really cheap one. So I invested quite a bit of money in, in Sedanko. 
and um, and my my investment worked out. It, it went up something like uh, six or seven hundred percent over the next year, and and I made um, for my investors more than a hundred million dollars. And so I was feeling very uh, happy and proud of myself, and and it was all going to be very lucrative for everybody involved. And then the majority shareholder of Sudanko, one of the biggest oligarchs in Russia, decided that he didn't want me to own all these or, or to have all this profit. And so they organized something called a dilution, where they're going to sell a whole bunch more shares, but they were going to sell them to themselves and not to me at a very low price, so that effectively stealing a good part of my of the money that we made. And and we calculated that with this dilution, we we're going to lose eighty-seven million dollars. And so I went from being a simple to somebody who had to to fight for for the rights of investors. And, um, and so I, I said to myself, well, how do you fight with an oligarch? Um, I was just a guy from the south side of Chicago I, and barely even speaking Russian. How am I going to fight with a Russian oligarch who's one of the most important men in the country? You can't go to the politicians or the law enforcement agencies and ask them to, uh, to help. And at this point, I had hired a whole bunch of bodyguards, and, and uh, I, I wasn't worried. I, I, I was worried, but, I, but I, was, I, I was so so upset by what was going on. I said, if you don't think I'm playing by the rules now, wait do you see what we're going to do to you next? we did was we went to the uh, Financial Times and I told the story to the Moscow bureau chief of the Financial Times and she, she then went to the, the, the oligarch Patanin and said, what's your side of the story? And, he, and his side of the story was uh, 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 th this Browder guy uh, is a terrible fund manager. He should have known that we were going to do this to him. His clients should sue him for being so stupid. Which wasn't exactly the right for a journalist because he was effectively admitting that he, what he was doing to us. And so um, uh, uh, after that, all the newspapers then started running stories, more stories, and so on. And then eventually, it became such a hot, high-profile issue that we went to the Russian um, SEC. And at the time, he was one of the, the guy running the SEC was one of the few honest um, uh, bureaucrats in Russia. And um, he um, uh, he reviewed the whole situation, and, and uh, we, we filed a criminal complaint. And eventually, he um, uh, turned the whole thing around and canceled the dilutive share issue and made me whole. And from that moment on, I realized that, um, you know, if you want to be investing in Russia, you, you, you have to fight. You can't just let these people steal from you, which is what they were doing all the time. And, and became what's, what's known as a shareholder activist, where I was uh, active in, in all the investments that we had in our portfolio. And, and you read in your book that you thought that you were actually improving the companies by investing in them and being an activist. Well, I was the only guy who seemed to be concerned about corruption. And so by trying to fight, fight against the corruption... Oftentimes, these companies were widely held by, even owned by the state. And so if I was stopping them from being corrupt, even if the government didn't care, I did. And so I was, I was actually had the perfect job. I was making money and making Russia a better place at the same time. So you survived your first brush with the Russian oligarchs, and then you have to fight against the markets. There's a massive drop uh, as a result of problems in Asia and then with the ruble itself. And I believe in 1998 you lost something on the order of $900 million. Explain how that happened and what is it like for those of us, namely all of us who haven't been in that situation, to lose $900 million? Well, let me tell you, it's not a good feeling. So, um, and, and to put this in perspective, I had a billion dollars under management, so I lost 90% of my money. And um, uh, it's, it's about the worst thing that can ever happen to you if you're in the business of managing money to have such a, a catastrophic... Uh, wipe out. 
And, and what had happened was that, um, uh, and, and this was uh, very, very instructive for what's, what's happened in the world since, is that um, Russia was a highly unstable country to start out with, and they had the, the, the entire um, uh, government deficit at the time was being um, uh, uh, financed using three-month uh, T-bills, and those three-month T-bills were paying about 30% interest. And so they had to roll their entire debt burden every three months to effectively loan sharks. And at the time, this is 1998, um, there was the uh, Asian currency crisis. And as the Asian currency crisis started to happen, all these Western loan sharks, effectively like hedge funds and, and proprietary trading desks and banks, um, they, they uh, stopped buying the bonds of Russia. And so Russia, in um, August of 1998, um, after... Um, trying various different methods to avoid this problem, uh, could not issue more bonds. They defaulted on their domestic debt. They devalued the currency by 75%, and my fund lost 90% or $900 million. And, and I can tell you that, that losing that amount of money is, is a physical sensation. It's a very unpleasant physical sensation. You can feel it like in the walls of your stomach. It's, a, it's such a terrible thing and, and such a shameful thing because I was responsible for a lot of people's money that had just evaporated. And so from that experience, I, or from that situation, I, I vowed myself that I was on my way to um, restore my investors' money by sticking it out and, and fighting it out and doing whatever I had to do to, to um, uh, ultimately have the portfolio recover. And, and I'm sorry to make you relive that episode, but you did ultimately recover and you fought back and you got back to your high water mark of funds under management. And then around that time in the book, you discuss an episode where you're being driven down a road. I believe it might have been in Moscow. And there's a man in the street who is clearly in pain and no one's stopping to help him. But you instruct your driver to, to stop. And this seems like a significant episode in your book based on what happened when you stopped to try to help this man and its broader implications. So, so th this was on a Saturday morning, and one of my uh, few leisure activities when I was living in Moscow was to play tennis, and they had these indoor tennis bubbles. And so um, my driver um, was, uh, I was with my girlfriend at the time, and my, and my driver was driving down the road, and, and, I, and I was, it was sort of a, um, uh, sort of a misty, kind of grayish morning everywhere. And um, I saw this big sort of black lump in the road, and I, and as we, I thought it was some kind of duffel bag or something like that that had fallen off a truck and as we got closer i saw it was a man and i, I shouted to my driver he, he he was um sort of reluctant to and, and i shouted again for him to stop and he he stopped next to the man and, and i got out to see what was going on and the guy was laying there twitching and um uh uh and so at that point my uh, my driver didn't want to get out of the car and I, I was really kind of getting angry with him and my girlfriend got out and, and at that point my driver saw that the that we were going to help this man no matter what. And so he, he jumps out. And, and then the three of us, I, I looped his arm under, under, under my, on my shoulder. My driver loops his other arm. My girlfriend takes his, his um, uh, feet, and we, we, we take him off to the, to the side of the road out of harm's way, and we, we lay him gently onto the snowbank. And as, as we do, he starts coming around. And, um, and, and he says in, in Russian, which sounds similar to English, but he says he has epilepsia, he says, which means he has an epileptic fit. And so just as he's doing this, the police arrive. And uh, 
and, and, and there's a bunch of people, but at this point, a lot of people have sort of gathered to figure out what's going on and, and um, the police arrive and, and they have absolutely no interest and like three police cars come and they have absolutely no interest in this man and his situation and is he okay or is he not okay. Um, the police are, are now looking at someone to blame, thinking that he was hit by a car. And the man starts to try to explain to the police, no, 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 I had an epileptic fit. It's, it's okay. I'm, 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 I'm fine. Um, but the police could, could care less about his welfare or what happened. And they start going around trying to figure out, and at first they come to me, they realize I'm a foreigner, and so they, they kind of move on from me. And then they zero in on my driver. And then for the next 15 minutes, they start interrogating him, um, uh, trying to uh, accuse him of hitting the man. And, and the only reason that, that he was able to extricate himself from the situation is that he was a former traffic policeman. If he hadn't been, he would have been arrested for hitting the man, even though the man hadn't been hit. And um, as we were, so eventually the, the ambulance arrives, that the man is actually okay. He goes into the ambulance. He thanks us for, for, for helping him. And we get back in the car and drive away. And, I, and, and my driver then explains to me why he didn't want to stop, which is that in Russia, um, any act of good Samaritanship like that, you, end, you can end up going to jail for 10 years. And, um, and so nobody was stopping. All the other cars didn't stop for exactly the reason that my driver didn't want to stop, which is that the, the police in Russia are just looking to put people in jail. There's no, there's, there's no uh, real justice there. And, um, uh, and so as a result of this, of the, and it's not just on, on driving, it's in every different aspect of life that nobody helps anybody in Russia because of this, uh, uh, this, this terrible sort of um, twisted culture of, of law enforcement. Um, and so there's sort of two, two, two takeaways from this. One is it's a very sort of brutal place. And the second is that, that the police actually didn't bother me because I was speaking a foreign language. And so um, it kind of, that, 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 this, this strange um, uh, realization that, that I, I somehow thought that I was immune from, from, from you know, the, the same things that Russians experienced because I was a foreigner. And this episode then presages what effectively ended up leading to the end of Hermitage Capital, which was the Russian authorities stealing two hundred, stealing your companies and ultimately redistributing $230 million of taxpayers' money to themselves. So explain how that all kind of transpired and how a government can just steal companies from its owners. So I was this shareholder activist. I was exposing corruption in companies I was investing in after Sudanko and quite successful doing it. And after um, Putin arrested Holikovsky and all the oligarchs became his business partners, um, uh, I was no longer welcome in Russia. And so I was flying back to Moscow uh, uh, from a weekend trip abroad from in London. And um, I arrived, it was a Sunday night, I arrived at Sheremetyevo 2 airport to the VIP lounge. And um, Normally, it's, it's a it's sort of five-minute exercise getting through and getting through customs and immigration. And for some reason, uh, it, it, for me, it lasted 45 minutes. And um, at the end of 45 minutes, instead of being let into the country, I was then arrested, put in the detention center of the airport, kept there for 15 hours. And I didn't know whether I was going to be put in jail or deported. Um, thankfully, the next day, 15 hours later, uh, they, they, they um, uh, me, put me onto an airflot flight and deported me back to London, and then declared me a threat to national security, not to ever allow me back into Russia. And this was a pretty big shock at this point, after having recovered the money from our, uh, from our um, drawdown, we were, I was running four and a half billion dollars. I was the largest foreign investor in the country. I'd been there for 10 years. I thought I'd been doing them a good service by exposing all this corruption, and, and here they were expelling me from the country. 
Um, and um, and so at, at this point, I, I, I took all of my, got all my people out, I evacuated my staff, and we liquidated all of our holdings quickly and quietly, and I thought that was the end of my time in Russia. It turned out to be uh, not the end, but the beginning of the worst nightmare you could ever imagine. And what happened was, after that, the, the Moscow police, 25 officers, raided my, my office in Moscow, and 25 more officers raided the office of an American law firm that I was using in Moscow. And the specific purpose of the raid was to get hold of the stamped seals and certificates for the investment holding companies through which we had invested our money. And um, we didn't know what this, uh, we, we didn't know why they were doing this um, until a couple months later when we discovered that all those documents were used to fraudulently re-register our investment out of our name um, into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and then let out of jail early by the police, presumably to put his name on these documents. So effectively, the police seized our documents and used them to steal our companies. And then, uh, um, and then, and then after that, um, we hire a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to investigate. Um, and he's a really smart lawyer, 35-year-old 30, guy at the time. And he figures out, through a very complicated scheme, um, that after stealing our companies, the main uh, purpose of stealing our companies, I guess, was first to try to steal our assets, but we had no assets left in Russia. And when they realized we had no assets left in Russia, they used those companies to apply for a tax refund. And in the previous year, we had paid $230 million of taxes. And the police, together with officials from the tax ministry and various other places, used all those documents to apply for a $230 million tax refund. On, on, and they applied on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas, and one day before Christmas, on Christmas Eve, this $230 million tax refund, which was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia, was paid out one day after they applied. The largest refund in, in, uh, tax refund in Russian history um, involving a bunch of corrupt officials. So you are able to physically, you, well, you're forced to leave Russia physically. You've taken your assets out, but Russia has effectively seized $230 million of tax money that you had paid. All of your major employees are out of Russia and your legal representatives are out of Russia, except Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky is imprisoned. Describe what life is like for him in prison. Well, let me just back up for one second. So Sergei testified against the police officers when we discovered this whole thing, thinking that, that um, somehow uh, this must be a rogue operation. There's no way that the president of Russia could allow $230 million of tax money just to go to a bunch of of corrupt cops and tax officials. So he testifies against them, and, and, and instead, of ha instead of the testimony being used to round up the bad guys, um, uh, on, um, in, in October, uh, I'm sorry, in November of 2008, um, the uh, three officers who report to one of the officers he testified against come to his home at eight in the morning in front of his wife and two children, turn the place upside down, then they arrest him, they put him in pretrial detention, and then they start to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. And then they want to get him to sign a, a false confession. And so they put, him in, um, uh, they put him in a cell with 14 inmates and leave the lights on 24 hours a day uh, to impose sleep de deprivation. Um, and, and then they come to him at the end of this, and they, at the end of a week of this, and they say, you know, sign this confession to say that you stole the $230 million. And they figure that this guy is just a, um, a tax lawyer um, easily um, uh, softened up, and, and after a week, he would sign anything. 
but Sergei refused. They then put him in a cell in December in Moscow that had no heat and no window panes, and he nearly froze to death. And they asked him again to sign the false confession. He again refused. They then put him in a cell with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up and the stench would be unbearable. Again, asking him to sign this thing. Again, he refused. They did all this stuff to him over and over and over again for about six months. And eventually it started to really affect his health badly. And he ended up losing 40 pounds, developing really severe pains in his stomach and being diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones. And he needed an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. A week before the operation was due, they then uh, uh, they show up again with this proposal for the false confession. And in spite of this unbelievable, horrific, unbelievably horrific situation, he just will not sacrifice his integrity. And, um, and so they then, they then abruptly move him from a prison that had a medical facility to a, a Moscow prison called Butyrka, which is a, a, a hellish place. It's, a, it's a, one of the worst prisons in Russia, a maximum security prison from hundreds of years ago, just a really grotesque place. And most significantly for Sergei, they have no medical facilities there at all. And at Butyrka, his health went completely over the edge and they refused him all medical attention. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different requests for medical attention to every different branch of the uh, penal law enforcement and judicial system. And, and uh, either they would ignore the requests or they'd actually send back answers in writing refusing him medical attention. And this just got worse and worse and worse. And on the night of November 16, 2009, uh, it just got to be too much for him, and he went into critical condition. And on that night, then, the prison officials at Butyrka then, then decided to move him back to the other prison, the medical wing, and they put him in an ambulance. They took him over to the other prison, but instead of putting him in the medical wing at the emergency room, they put him into an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons showed up in the isolation cell and beat him for one hour and 18 minutes until he died at the age of 37. You then spend several months, if not over a year, well, multiple, it was actually multiple years, trying to obtain some modicum of justice for Sergei Mag- Magnitsky, and that culminates in the passage of the Magnitsky Act, which is effectively the beginning of the diplomatic pressure placed on the Putin regime by the West. It freezes the assets of those Russians who were involved with Sergei Magnitsky's death and also imposes visa bans on them. How does Vladimir Putin respond to that and what does it say about him? The, the Russians, after they killed Sergei, covered up the crime. They, they completely and absolutely covered it up. They claimed he hadn't died of any violence. They claimed that he was not mistreated. And, um, and they ended up exonerating and promoting and giving special honors that is, they exonerated everybody and they gave those promotions and special honors to a number of the most complicit people involved. And so we said to ourselves, we have to get out of Russia. And, and the only kind of justice we could think of was the idea that these people steal this money and they want to keep it in the West and they want to keep it safely in the West. And so we came up with this idea of freezing their assets and banning the visas. I took it to Washington and I got uh, uh, um, Senator McCain and Senator Cardin, um, a Democrat and a Republican, um, to um, co-sponsor something called the Magnitsky Act, which, um, which it took a long time to, to work its way through Congress, but we succeeded in two, December of 2012 of getting this thing passed. And Putin went crazy because this, this is Putin's Achilles heel because Putin is a kleptocrat. Remember, he's the guy who's, who's now business partners with all these oligarchs, and he's got a hell of a lot of money all over the place. 
And the idea that his money can be frozen just made him absolutely crazy. And so the first thing he did, and, and this is probably one of, one of the most heinous things I've ever seen in my life, he banned Americans from adopting Russian children. And I should point out that the Russian children orphans that Americans were allowed to adopt in 2012 were only the disabled ones, the ones with Down syndrome, the ones with HIV, the ones with spinal bifida, the children who the Russians didn't want to adopt. And so these were the, 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 the most frail of all orphans in Russia were the ones Americans were allowed to adopt. And Americans with good hearts came to Russia and adopted these children, took them out of these hellish orphanages and gave them new lives and gave them medical attention. And so many, many of these kids, were, were, their lives were being saved by Americans, and Putin has basically sentenced them to death. Why did he sentence them to death? He sends them to death to, to protect or to retaliate um, because his corrupt officials were being punished. So that was the first thing he did. And then the second thing he did, which was, which was, which was truly um, unprecedented, was he decided then to hold a trial. And the person he, or the people he put on trial was what first was Sergei Magnitsky himself, three years after he died. So they, they, this is, they put a dead man on trial. Now, never in the history of Russia have they put a dead man on trial, not even during Stalin's time. And they put me on trial next to Sergei in absentia. And so there was a trial taking place in the summer of 2013 with an empty cage, a, a seat for Sergei who was in the ground and a seat for me who was out of the country. And of course, found us both guilty. And so um, it, it was clear that we, 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 you know, from this incredible emotionally emotional reaction from Putin, that we we touched a nerve. We figured out what it was that he really cared about. And um, and it's interesting because this these sanctions, which were called Magnitsky sanctions, um, were the basis when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, it was the basis for which they then imposed sanctions on other people there. And so this, this set off a, a wave of sanctions and a policy um, of how to deal with Russia. What do you believe would be true justice for Sergei Magnitsky? The only justice in my mind is putting the people in jail for, um, and for the ones who tortured and killed him, that they go to jail in Russia. But I don't believe that Putin is going to stay president um, forever, and maybe not for that much longer, depending on how things play themselves out. And so my vision is that there's going to be a day in the future at some point when there's going to be a big regime change in Russia. And when, when the new leaders or the provisional government or however it's defined comes in, they're going to then hold tribunals of crimes of the previous regime. And my hope is that the first tribunals of the crimes of the Putin regime will be the Magnitsky tribunals. What would you say to those in the West? There's been sort of an increasing affinity between some of the more radical political parties in Europe, and there are even people in America, even people who call themselves conservatives, who have said that they sort of admire how Putin runs his country. They view him as upholding values of Christianity and traditionalism and the like. What would you say to those people in the West about Putin? Well, Putin is, is a, a stone-cold killer. I mean, it's like an admiring Pablo Escobar. I mean, you know, um, this, this man is the head of an organized crime group with the powers of a sovereign state. And whatever his, his um, religious or moral leanings have nothing... I mean, this man is an absolute monster. I mean, there's, there's nothing objectively um, good about him when you look at, at what he does. And so, I mean, you have to be, you know, completely blind not to see what he's up to, and he's up to really bad stuff. 
you're, I'm sure that you're aware, being in London, that the Alexander Litvinenko inquiry recently started. And for those readers who aren't familiar or listeners who aren't familiar, Litvinenko was a former FSB agent who defected and revealed lots of very damaging things about the Putin regime. And he was ultimately poisoned uh, with what was, in effect, it's been, has been described as a mini nuclear weapon. Uh, you write in your book about the fact that you think that there could be a chance that the Russians could go after you, even on foreign soil, as they've done to others in London. With all that in mind, if you could deliver a message to Vladimir Putin today, what would your message be to him? Well, I, I think my message to him um, today is that um, his days are numbered, and um, uh, he, he, he'd be better off looking for an exit strategy than the, than the strategy that, that um, uh, Muammar Gaddafi or uh, Slobodan Milosevic chose. I mean, you know, there, there's really, um, you know, there, there might be, you know, there, there may be some country in the world that would take him. Um, uh, and, you know, like Idi Amin back in the many, many years ago went to Saudi Arabia from, from Uganda. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the damage that he's doing and, and the, 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 his prospects are not good um, in, in his current path. The name of the book is Red Notice, and it covers much more than we've talked about in this interview. There's lots of intrigue, there's espionage, there are heart-pounding episodes that none of us hopefully will ever have to deal with, and it's a shame, Bill, that you had to deal with them yourself. We've been speaking with author Bill Browder. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks for all the work that you've done. Thank you. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhwinegarden.